Hey, Hello, sure. how are you? Good to see you. Nice how are see you? you. Good. Um, thanks for coming out to Boston. Uh, where, we, where did you come in from? Literally from DC, from which DC. is home when I'm not on an airplane. So yeah, it was yeah, easy. It's a, it's, it's a, is it colder in here? Yes, much. And yeah, this is the, the little pre roll while we wait for everybody to show up. Uh oh, yeah. it's broadcast. Okay, we're good. Um, so t- tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're excited about right now. Yeah, so I've spent a lot of time as an entrepreneur. I ran all the online stuff for the Washington Post and Newsweek and then broke off as an entrepreneur and built a a health and wellness platform called healthcentral.com, which really, I'd gone through some very tough personal experiences around that time with a Mm -hmm. parent who had lost a battle to cancer and then a friend of mine who lost his battle to bipolar disorder. And I realized in the connected environment we are, you can find people who are like you going through what you're going through. Mm-hmm. So I built a platform of bringing those people together by the millions. And so, so I built companies for a while. So this was a, a, a separate startup? It was. That was, then, that was then acquired by the yeah. Washington Post? Is no, no, it wasn't. This is, I broke off from the Washington Post oh, having okay. run the business. And then I, see, I did I this with Sequoia and other oh, you know, okay. venture capital types in the, in the traditional way. And then we sold it to a big a media health publishing company mm-hmm. a few years ago. But now I've spent half of my time in emerging markets and mm-hmm. how technology and startups and entrepreneurship are mm-hmm. affecting and changing these societies bottom up. And, and you wrote a book a little, a little while ago, but, but it was about the, the entrepreneurship in, in, the, in the Middle East. Yeah, in the, in the Arab world. It, it, is, it is, I will say, the most hopeful book that's been written by mm-hmm. at least an American yeah, in the yeah, Arab world yeah. in a long, long time. And it's, you know, we hear about ISIS all the time because ISIS is important. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, ISIS is 20,000 people. Mm-hmm. We should be more curious about the 350 million other Arabs and what are they mm-hmm. doing. And so the new generation in particular, empowered by technology, are doing mm-hmm. amazing things that we don't hear. I mean, mm-hmm. today, um, the uh, ride-sharing, first ride-sharing company of the Middle East was just valued at over a billion dollars. And you know that and I know that. Mm-hmm. But I think most people don't know that there have been, in fact, two major unicorns mm-hmm. in the Arab world in the last eight months. Mm-hmm. So we need to spend as much time thinking about what's coming as much as the difficulties that we all know about. And, and so when, when, did you, when did you write that book? So the book came out two years ago. A new edition came out a year ago. And are you, are you so, okay, so it's pretty recent, but so do, are you finding yourself being, becoming more optimistic as time goes by? You know, Vaclav Havel makes this wonderful distinction between hope and optimism. Mm-hmm. And optimism is mm-hmm. everything's going to go great. And mm-hmm. hope is that, that things may not go great, but they make sense. And mm-hmm. I'm very hopeful, not only about what I've been seeing in the Arab world, but mm-hmm. I've now been to Nairobi and Southeast Asia and um, uh, Latin America. Mm-hmm. And this phenomenon of young people having universal access to technology mm-hmm. is so profound that I, ju- I don't think you can put it back. And so governments will squash it for a time and governments mm-hmm. will fall behind because they don't appreciate it or mm-hmm. they think of it as a risk. Mm-hmm. But I have to tell you, I'm quite hopeful, even mm-hmm. with all the news today, mm-hmm. I'm quite hopeful when I'm out on the road and seeing these people. And, and you're still spending a lot of time there, right? I do. You know, I'm on the board of the American University of Beirut. I'm right, on the board right. of the Business School of the American University of Cairo. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll go and, and uh, mentor young people there. I'm a, a member of the investment committee of one of the great mm-hmm. uh, venture capital arms there, Wamda Capital, yep, who yep, you know yep. so well. Um, but a lot of times what I try to do is I try to convince a lot of the Americans, particularly from Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. to take this talent seriously. And mm-hmm. I've helped people come to Silicon Valley. I've helped money be raised and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And mm-hmm. so it's, uh, it's rewarding, but I think hopeful. Mm-hmm. Helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and our friend Habib yes. is moving from the region out here. I mean, I think one of the things that um, um, is interesting to see is kind of these the emergence of entrepreneurial ecosystems. You know, I remember in, in Japan as well, like the early days of the Internet stuff, there were mostly just business model companies. But now you're starting to see more tech companies. And I think one of the things um, in the region is, um, 
you know, sort of the the the, the science and 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 because um, um, you've got some some great schools, but but you don't have as much of the inf- infrastructure around you do to do real technology and real science. And so, um, I think getting Habib over here to sort of absorb some of Boston as well. I mean, Habib is, has just been one of the leaders of ecosystem building there and the, the platform he developed there at WAMDA, mm-hmm. uh, which was one part tech crunch, but also one of the great community building mm-hmm. uh, phenomenon there was important because to your point, it's not a top-down thing right now. In mm-hmm. fact, there's a lot of resistance top-down, both in big government and mm-hmm. traditional uh, government. And then, but bottom-up, because people have access to technology, they're mm-hmm. using science and technology, mm-hmm. not waiting for the top-down to come. Right, right. But there are good universities there that if they were better in focus on this, could be very impactful. Mm-hmm. If governments were to mm-hmm. change the rule of law and focus on, on encouraging STEAM education, mm-hmm. it would mm-hmm. be very helpful. They would take a tremendous amount of friction and headwind out of it. And as you know, because you've lived there, the closest to this so far is absolutely Dubai mm-hmm. and UAE, generally mm-hmm. speaking. I mean, they are they have changed rule of law dramatically even mm-hmm. in the last year. Mm-hmm. They really are in motion to try to have a network effect of talent. Mm-hmm. And I can mm-hmm. tell you, one of the biggest differences I've seen in the Middle East since I've written the book is that now in Dubai, when I'm there, I see like the best from Egypt, the best from mm-hmm. Jordan, the best mm-hmm. from uh, other parts of the region who have come to Dubai because they can succeed there mm-hmm. in large part because of the rule of law and the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And that tends to have a success breeds success. And that mm-hmm. makes me hopeful about an ecosystem expanding there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember when I, when I moved to Dubai and I got all of my human rights friends beating me up and a lot of people saying, how could you, how could you move there? And I remember I, and I, I did a, I did one of these conversations with um, Satan Al-Qasemi. Yeah, and, and, you wonderful know, guy. and you know, it's, but you know, you guys. It took you a hundred years to figure this stuff out. Right. We're just you know decades right. since we've we're, we're, we've become a nation. And I think that people forget that you know whether and it's 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 kind of a general thing whether you're talking about you know um, emissions in China or you're thinking about um, you know entrepreneurship and rule of law in the Middle East. I mean, the, these countries are are um, are um, maturing at such a speed that that you know you 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 really forget how how new some of these places are i mean look I, you've had this experience i will fly into dubai now and literally leave the plane and be in my hotel in 30 minutes because mm-hmm. it's a completely technologically oriented experience yeah. like try that at kennedy airport yeah. i mean yeah the, these things have to be respected there will be contextual things that will will be uncomfortable at times mm-hmm. there are things that happen in our country mm-hmm. which are uncomfortable at times um, uh, but your point, I think, which is that this is a 41, in this case, it's a 45-year-old country. In mm-hmm. other cases, they've been around a while, but mm-hmm. technology evolution has been a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, the real question to ask is, do you want to help that or not? Is it, yeah. is it better not to support that? Yeah. And I don't understand that argument at all. So one random thing. I mean, I, I went and visited um, customs at Dubai um, because we were talking about um, actually that the, you know uh, uh, Sultan bin Salem is there, his yeah. company's a, a member of the lab, but but it was really amazing because they thought of all of the people going through the airport as their customers, yes, and they were trying to figure out how to make it more efficient, how to not cause them anxiety, how to be more fair, and and I can't imagine almost any government's sort of customs and border protection types being you know thinking about. Um, you know, customer service as, as their primary thing. You know? and, and I think it's, it has to do with Dubai being a logistics hub and wanting people to come in and competing for, for, um, for, for visitors. But, but, but the, the way that the, 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 you know, the customs officers were you know, encouraged to innovate and come up with ideas, and, and it, was just, uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was really interesting. I mean, at one level, it's a, it is truly a startup nation and has the advantage to, to do that, but it mm-hmm. takes leadership. Mm-hmm. to make a decision to do that and, and have, walk that walk at every step of life. 
So the fact that you had that experience at Customs tells you a lot about that and what could be replicated as a model mm -hmm. elsewhere if leadership were to choose to do so. Mm -hmm. I mean, you probably read a couple of months ago that Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid, who is the head effectively mm -hmm. of Dubai, the prime minister of the UAE, mm -hmm. showed up at one of the offices in the ministry at 7.30 one morning where he expected his leadership to be there and nobody was there. Mm -hmm. And the next day he fired them all. And the you know one level you say well that's sort of business 101 but the signal that that sends with a level of consistency of all the things that you've just mm -hmm. described that's where there's actually a, a shift and I think he what he also banned doors on managers yes. offices yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean this is and people get it because yeah. they have no choice but to get it but then success right. breeds success right right that's interesting no but so, so have you been back? Since the, the election in, 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 in the Middle East? I've not been back in the Middle East, literally. The last time I was there was a week before the election where, mm -hmm. like most of us, there was anticipation of a different result. Right, right, right. You know, right. that transpired. And I, and I think uh, it's, um, it's the whole campaign was a sense of shock, I think, amongst many people there. And mm -hmm. frankly, I was in many places where they almost looked at us as sympathy just for mm -hmm. the forgetting which side you are on the issue. Mm -hmm. But the tenor of our election mm -hmm. and the, the mm -hmm. articulation of so many issues, mm -hmm. uh, I think, was viewed upon with uh, really quite surprise and yeah. almost yeah. everyone I dealt with over there. Yeah, no, it'll be interesting to see how and if these things change. I mean, I think a lot of it's still up in the air for us. Total, I think it's yeah. totally up in the air. I mean, across the board. Yeah. So we'll have to see. But, you know, I mean, the, it's not, you know, at one level, I think there's that famous line of Peter Thiel that said the mistake with Trump mm -hmm. was to take him seriously, as, as take him literally without taking him seriously. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a lot of people over there saying, you know, did he mean what he said about Muslims? Did he mm -hmm. mean what he said about mm -hmm. uh, immigration? Or was this part of a directional theme for which in execution it will mm -hmm. be different? And to mm -hmm. your point, none of us know yet. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, and so then what have you been doing recently? I mean, cause I know you, when I last spent substantial time with you, you were thinking about sort of the future of journalism, right? Yeah. I mean, if, what, where do you think that's going? Anything well, you know, I, you know, one of the things that I really obsessed on, um, and still do because I care a lot about it, but now more as an investor than a person mm -hmm. actually trying mm -hmm. to to make it happen because I ran all the online stuff for the Washington Post mm -hmm. and Newsweek and I, mm -hmm. so I've stayed at time. I was one of the first investors in Vox and, mm -hmm. and uh, Skift and mm -hmm. companies like that. So I care a lot about where this goes. And I really felt that there was an opportunity in the world that we're in to do stuff with data that's never been done before to try to cut out a sense of punditry, to, to start cut out the idea that there's a left news and a right news, mm -hmm. but in fact, facts that we could look at and try to interpret them and find unobvious connections about audiences to that. Mm -hmm. And I still have a part of me that believes that could be highly effective and important. I must say that the last six months really showed that the ability to use technology to mm -hmm. build echo chambers mm -hmm. where we can self-affirm what we want to believe and mm -hmm. see nothing else mm -hmm. uh, is deeply concerning to me. And I'm not sure the traditional media did anything to really help to mm -hmm. ameliorate that situation. Yeah. And in fact, I think too many of them are trying to replicate it and play to it because they think, quote unquote, that's what audiences want, game mm -hmm. over, that's mm -hmm. what people want. Mm -hmm. And secondly, uh, that's what they think advertisers require mm -hmm. for audience. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that's pretty lazy. I'm not convinced that people aren't willing to be engaged Mm -hmm. on a broader set of issues mm -hmm. in, in uh, having an opportunity to be exposed to it. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you, you know, if you are in an echo chamber of a certain group of people and you're following only a certain group of people on Twitter or whatever it mm -hmm. is, it's very hard for you to have curiosity about mm -hmm. other opinions that might be relevant mm -hmm. to you. Yeah, there's a, I know you saw Deb Roy and his yeah. work um, today, but there's a, I think, I guess, I think, <laughs> I think that Vice uh, get, got the, wrote the article about it, but it Those showed, charts were unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah describe the, them. Yeah, where the, Twitter followers, I mean, basically the mainstream media 
was not connected to the Trump followers at, at all, all, right? Zero. Yeah, it's it's pretty stunning, right? And yeah. it's um, and I mean, why why do you how does this, how did that happen? Do you think? Well, I think that the media gets into its own echo chamber. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I mean, to be blunt, I think that many journalists and certainly journalistic organizations that I've dealt with, they're, they're kind of lemmings. I mean, why, why do we hear, I mean, going back to the, the even the Middle East stuff, why is it that you and I take for granted some of these evolutions happening in the Middle East, but if you were to watch any traditional media, you would see none of it? And mm-hmm. because the, there is a theme that becomes a theme that people don't really think to question, and there seems to be no upside to question. Mm-hmm. I mean, 10, mm-hmm. 15 years ago, if we were going to talk about Colombia, we would talk about it in one meme, one mm-hmm. theme of what Colombia is. Now, all of a sudden, it's the jewel of Latin America, the third largest growth economy mm-hmm. there, and mm-hmm. like people shift on that. And so now, two, three months ago, the meme was Hillary's going to win, and she's going to win big, and this is a something else that needs to be watched, but it's mm-hmm. going to come and go back into its box. Mm-hmm. And a week, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, the meme was the Republican Party is over and needs to implode. Mm-hmm. Here we are three, three weeks later, and the media is like, no, the Democratic Party is the one that's imploding, mm-hmm. and now we have to take seriously something that we did not engage with before. Mm-hmm. And I, I do, I think it's a carelessness and an inability to sort of ask unobvious questions, not only about what's going on right now, but what might be coming. And um, it's, a, it's a laziness, I think, in many respects. So, 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 you, so you do think, so, so are you saying that you think journalism has gotten worse? Or that, I mean, what, when you say laziness, what, what, is, what is that? Well, I mean, the journalism at its best is far from lazy. I have to tell you, I mean, I'm biased a little bit because they were my old group, mm-hmm. but what, what David Farenthold did and others did in this, election at the Washington Post wasn't lazy at all. It was really great old-school journalism. And by mm-hmm. the way, we have to be careful because, of course, old-school journalism mm-hmm. was completely bifurcated and highly politicized. Mm-hmm. We forget that this idea of the last 30, 40 years that there might be something called centrist journalism mm-hmm. was never a part of the American makeup and, of course, was even debatable when we mm-hmm. called it that way. So this is a, it's a fluid and not very pretty kind of a thing. But overall, the, the, the curiosity to kind of get an alignment around facts and institutions mm-hmm. And to dig into them on those terms as opposed to uh, really trying to get that hit that becomes a hashtag or mm-hmm. becomes something that drives traffic in the immediacy mm-hmm. um, does not really foster environment with, of contemplation. Or, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I may feel myself on a certain spectrum, but the world isn't merely right and left. It's many other things. Mm-hmm. And we can have a lot of unobvious connections before that. And I don't think that our journalism has done mm-hmm. good at that at all. And I think I don't watch television journalism much at all. But I really think that they were playing a ratings game and a, mm-hmm. you know, trying to make it fun and cute, and they didn't mm-hmm. take Trump seriously early on for that. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that was a gross missed opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like also the, the the battlefield has shifted. I mean, I feel like, you know, the the news used to report on stuff that was going on, and it would sort of hover above the action as sort of a third person. And and now I think the media is the battlefield, and I think it's kind of like. Redcoats and guerrilla warfare. I mean, I think that the, the, the rules of engagement are so different, and I think you see some people, um, kind of in the th- thick of it. Really, I mean, we used the word earlier, but weaponizing the media to sort of directly attack things, um, and and I think it's it's kind of caught the media off guard a little bit too, because you know they're, they're, it's it's not clear what's because like this whole conversation about fake news is kind of an interesting one because it's it's sort of you know. Um, Looking at stuff, and this gets back to the whole, even you know, literally versus seriously. I mean, you know, it, it's when 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 sort of the, the the point of the thing that's being deployed is to attack somebody, not to deliver a message about somebody being attacked. It's it's just a different thing, and it feels like two people playing 
different video games in the same space yes. and not really getting what the rules of the other game are. You know? No, I heard the word weaponized now as a use of content in a way that this never would have been used in the days a few years ago when I was mm-hmm. running Washington Post Newsweek Interactive. Mm-hmm. And again, the journalism, I think, typically do not or, or in theory, don't want to be part of the story. They do want to be the dispassionate coverer mm-hmm. of facts and everything else. But I have to tell you, not only have they been drawn into it, I think some of them really embrace it. And I think mm-hmm. televisions particularly, look, mm-hmm. when you have a panel of eight people mm-hmm. with people from the right and people from the left kind of shouting at each other, you're not seeking truth. You're not mm-hmm. seeking anything that's dispassionate whatsoever. Right. In fact, right. you're cultivating the, the other parts of it. And I think it's um, curious, but the fact is, this is not going back. I mean, the idea that would go back to three news networks. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I mean, those days are long gone. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. fact is, everyone who is sophisticated and has some sense of how to use social media will mm-hmm. weaponize content. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. think we have a good answer about how we can get around that in order to have a better informed mm-hmm. electorate, mm-hmm. a better informed mm-hmm. civil society. And, and, and the thing that happens when you weaponize is that obviously you have wars, right? And, yeah. and I mean, whether whatever position you take on Russia's involvement, there was a, you know, there was a great article, I think it was called The Agency, New York Times Magazine, way before all of this controversy about the thousands of, of people who, that are, you know, work for this Russian agency that basically run around and troll stuff, yes. you know, and, um, and it's, uh, and it clearly was a weapon yes. or is a weapon, you know, and, and to think about, you know, and, and, and there was a, I was, I was listening to a, a, a senior U.S. intelligence person at a, at a conference talking about how, um, in the U.S. intelligence, they don't, um, trade information or they don't give information from the government sources to businesses. That's just a thing. And they were kind of talking to the Chinese counterparts saying, you know, you know, think about the ethical thing. Why are you giving this information to the business things? Because you guys idiots. Why wouldn't you do that? I mean, don't you care about your companies? You know, and, and I think what's interesting is as you, you know, this is, this reminds me of like the red coats thing, right? Like, or, or even before that, before Napoleon, when, when the, when the, the generals would be having lunch on the hilltop watching their troops fight, you know, that, the, the, the kind of, you know, full sentences with proper punctuation kind of media versus this, tactical, you know, hey, anything it takes kind of, uh, you know, guerrilla warfare. It, it's, it's interesting because it really does feel like, and, and, and when you look at like sort of the, the difference between fighting against ISIS and fighting against Iraq, you know, I mean, it's just a, it's a completely different war. I mean, I, um, a lot of Joshua Ramos um, writing in, yeah. in both of his books are, is, is about this kind of completely different shift in the way international relations work. And I think that's just sort of catching up to the media, what we've been seeing in, in a lot of these other spaces. So, I mean, the good news in, in this is that there's a different kind of a dialogue where people can feel engaged and a higher level of transparency mm-hmm. that can call accountability. The bad news is twofold. One is, again, we can do that environment in our own echo chambers, which means it compounds a sense of weaponizing what we're trying to do. And secondly, and this is in a way so much that your book also, I think, played a role in what's happening much broader outside of the media kind of conversation we have overall. It, it starts to call into questions, you know, the institutions themselves. So it's not only this politician did a bad thing or a good thing and let's analyze it. It is, is the CIA, in fact, as an institution trustworthy whatsoever? Mm-hmm. And what is the check to put a balance on rightful debate 
about when CIA does terrible intelligence, mm-hmm. which it should be put on, and it may be a lumbering bureaucracy that mm-hmm. could be questioned. And on the other hand, it has an incredibly valuable mm-hmm. you know, uh, attribute in the connection of keeping mm-hmm. institutions informed about what's happening in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and now what ends up happening is it goes to the polls. The people who want to think these institutions are flawed, mm-hmm. you can't change their mind. Right. And the other people who are somewhere on the other side that these institutions are important, mm-hmm. where do they defend from? Where do they come from? So, so I, I think actually, in fact, the, 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 the flip side of fake news is fake intelligence yes. know, because it's not even fake. It's just wrong. wrong. You know? and, and, and I think what's, what's, what's fascinating to me is it's actually not a new thing. I think it was during Clinton, um, there was this whole open source intelligence movement. And at least this is a story that I heard from somebody from the CIA, which was that um, somebody had uh, given a, a request to a librarian and a request to a CIA uh, analyst and um, the CIA analyst came back with nearly the same answer, classified, so that they couldn't use it, and at a high cost later. And the librarian came up with nearly the same thing using open source, um, openly available sources, unclassified, cheaper, faster. And that, um, in fact, you know, I was actually at a very funny conference where um, it was like retired intelligence officers talking to each other, and they were like, "Oh yeah, I remember when, you know, what we used to do is, you know, we would just um, bribe CNN." To give us a story a little bit before they broadcast it, we just send it in. You know? intelligence. You know? <laughs> and, and you know, but 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 it, but when you get these large apparatuses that are kind of bureaucratic, and and especially when you lock it down, and this is this is I think my 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 point here is that the minute you start to classify things and do things in secrecy, I think two things happen: things slow down, right, and also it allows a kind of it inability to check things. So so this like this whole Snowden leak thing. The big thing about it is actually. You know, once you protect people with secrecy, they can they start to cut corners. They start no to do things. You know, and mm-hmm. and I think you know I, I I use the word transparency, robustness, right? So if you know you're going to be you know visible, you kind of structure whether it's open source software or you know public office. If you know everything's going to get out there, you're careful about how you say things, how you do things, the variable names you use in your software. You don't use you know swear words, it, 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 but it's hard to go from closed to open. It's yes. because you've already got all this baggage. And I think one of the problems with some of the institutions we have is they're not designed to be transparent. Absolutely. Right. But today with WikiLeaks and with the kind of online stuff that we have. Most of the stuff is going to end up out there. And so in, in a weird way, I think some of the smaller countries and maybe individuals who are kind of coming in here with the assumption that they're going to be, you know, everything's going to be um, out there, um, you can build a different kind of robustness. So the question, I, by the way, I agree with that, and I find that net-net pretty positive. And by the way, when I was a kid, I worked for this, for Baker and mm-hmm. uh, the State Department. Mm-hmm. So I'd similar, I, I found that people classified material as often as not mm-hmm. to make sure someone would read it because if mm-hmm. it had this aura of oh, something, you know, yeah, there would be yeah. that kind of dynamic. And I must say 85% of the stuff that I saw was actually already in the press was kind mm-hmm. of conventional mm-hmm. in any event. Um, and I actually, I had my own experience in, in, a, in a, when uh, Czechoslovakia was opening up where I went to a briefing to see mm-hmm. what was happening, what was the latest intelligence. And they had people from all over the intelligence apparatus and they, mm-hmm. they shushed me and said, just look at the TV. And it was CNN with people on the ground there who reported on what was happening in Wenceslas Square. Right, and the, right. the person turned to me and said, well, that's the latest. <laughs> like, <laughs> wow, we are in a different world overall. But look, the trade is, is the, the transparency net net I welcome. The, the trade is maybe threefold. One is, again, 
when stuff is transparent, people are still weaponizing it or compartmentalizing it into their echo chambers, which mm -hmm. means the value of that transparency and the ability to assess it, it almost instantly gets co-opted. And I think mm -hmm. that's a worrisome thing that we have mm -hmm. to keep involved in. Secondly, as human beings, like I'm all up for transparency. I'm a very transparent dad. But there are mm -hmm. times when mm -hmm. my wife and I needed to speak about stuff and, and brainstorm mm -hmm. where other people don't have the context for that. And if you pull anything that someone says right. to someone, right. you, you lose the context and you jump to a conclusion that, in fact, may not be accurate mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, of course, um, part of the biggest reason why information gets classified is to protect sources. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and that, to me, is not inconsequential when mm -hmm. there are people who mm -hmm. are putting their lives mm -hmm. on the line mm -hmm. to try to help something in a way where some sense of opaqueness mm -hmm. is, in fact, mm -hmm. a way to stay alive. Yep. So that just to me has to be part of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and you know, and I would I would say that kind of like most technical things, I don't I don't have a strong um, view of because because there are trade offs on both sides. I just think it is. Like, yes, that, yes, just absolutely. Just because of WikiLeaks, you just have to kind of assume. I agree. That um, and and those secrets that you have, you better protect them really well. Yeah. Because they're they're at risk, and I think what you 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 have to do is you really have to change the way you think about the world and the way you talk about things and the way you know because because again you, you will it, you know in some secrets you'll, you maybe you can keep but 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 assuming that people can keep secrets is like a bad assumption yeah you know and I think you just have to design like it's like security systems you have to assume failure rather than try to protect this is one of my things is is, is resilience over safety resilience strength, over safety, right? yeah. is is that you can't you can't just be strong you've got to be resilient and, and I think that that you know, that's whether we're talking about governments or whether we're talking about, um, you know, um, medicine. Um, it really is about how, how do you create a self-adaptive system that's going to be able to heal. Well, itself, so many right? of these institutions, medicine's a good example, but government for sure, they, they look at it as information as a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. It's a coin of a realm or something to be protected for other reasons as well. And, and I agree with you, those days are over. But I think I think what we need to be thinking about is not just merely, okay, in that environment, how do you have, say, a security apparatus? That's mm -hmm. an important question. Mm -hmm. But I have to think that it's worthy to talk about the unintended consequences of that transparency. Mm -hmm. And so, again, right. I don't think if we were sitting here a year from now, we would be talking about the weaponization of content the same way that we do now. Mm -hmm. It wasn't on our radar screen to think mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. And so I suppose if I cared about the security apparatus, I'd be thinking not only about the classic traditional, what should be secret, what should be not, mm -hmm. what do I have to live with and be flexible to live with it, mm -hmm. but to also think about, by the way, when this does go out, what are the knockoff effects that, frankly, are going to compound aspects of my job that I've never thought was never part of my job mm -hmm. a year ago? So that, to me, is part of the resilience and the flexibility. So, so what are you working on now? So I spend half of my time investing in and working with American startups, uh, very often consumer-facing, though I become more intrigued by companies that are trying to solve problems that have ramifications in mm -hmm. emerging markets. So mm -hmm. uh, with Reid Hoffman and others, I'm a, a, a supporter of a company called Segovia, which is a fintech company, which is helping big institutions like NGOs, but also corporations mm -hmm. to move quickly and with efficacy uh, cash to people mm -hmm. in the you know, the new billion who are coming online who are still maybe in poverty or rising from mm -hmm. poverty overall. And it's a wonderful tech solution for a problem that, that I think can be very powerful global in these markets. Mm -hmm. The other half of my life has been very focused on a kind of almost a nonprofit way uh, to, again, to support and help these entrepreneurs and countries mm -hmm. find the best of the best, mm -hmm. find uh, money, find mentors, find resource, and have business development connections. Mm -hmm. Because, as you know so well, one of the beautiful things about when these enterprises succeed, they really do have a multiplier effect. Mm -hmm. They create many more jobs than a lot of people think they do because they build a network around mm -hmm. them of resources mm -hmm. that are required. They kick off hundreds of other entrepreneurs who will build the other. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. kick off wealth that can invest in these enterprises overall. 
Uh, so I do that. And I'm, in the next year, you and I have talked a little bit about it. I think there's enormous opportunity in these um, regions uh, for growth capital. There's more seed capital than ever before. There's mm -hmm. more A round capital to get them up and running. Mm -hmm. But so many of these entrepreneurs will do great things and they need maybe five or $10 million mm -hmm. and like they stole out the money. Mm -hmm. The money is there, but the culture mm -hmm. and risk tolerance to invest in companies of that stage is still pretty limited. And so I'm going to spend a lot of time helping there. Because so, I was spending time in Dubai probably now, now that I've been for a while, maybe, you know, six, seven years ago. Yeah. And back then I felt like, you know, there was a little, there was capital, but it wasn't very sophisticated. No. And, and I found, you know, that they were used to capital investments, but not really you know, software type investments. I mean, has, has that, do you think that's changed? In no, I don't think it has changed significantly off of a very, very low base. I still, mm -hmm. uh, look, there's, as you know, in any of these corners of the world, the issue is not, is the wealth there? Mm -hmm. The question is how you deploy it. And, mm -hmm. and if you've spent your life almost with a private equity mentality mm -hmm. or you big real estate plays, I'm going right. to build one more four seasons hotel somewhere. The idea of saying, well, why don't you invest that in a portfolio where 80% of that portfolio may go to zero, but 20% might be mm -hmm. unbelievably successful. And there are these knockoff multiplier mm -hmm. effects. Mm -hmm. There is a generation that is still very hesitant to that. But what is so interesting is one, mm -hmm. some of these companies have succeeded. So you have people in their thirties and forties with wealth who are deploying. Even traditional family offices are now being run by people in their thirties and their forties mm -hmm. who've been around the world and have seen this. And so it's, it's happening and it's mm -hmm. still to me very slow. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, even the most hard nosed investors will say to me, which is a truth, even in uh, many parts of America where there's just not a lot of exits. Mm -hmm. So where's the evidence that this is a good asset class to be focused in? There would be one knockoff we keep talking about, but that's right. not an ecosystem. That's right. a knockoff. But again, the fact that there are two, um, uh, uh, uh billion dollar valuations in Arab companies in the last mm -hmm. eight months, and I mm -hmm. see three or four more in the next mm -hmm. year. Uh, and I'm seeing some very exciting assets in Africa. Mm -hmm. You see people like Mark Zuckerberg showing yep. up in Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, the conversation we're going to have five years from now is very different than the one you experienced before. Right. And yeah. I think we're somewhere in the middle of that right now. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah. So we're kind of at the halfway mark, which is the uh, beginning of the recommended Facebook Live time. But is there anything else you wanted to no, I mean, the, you know, the only other thing is I, I, I have to tell you that it's very easy in this day and age to be pretty worried about things because there's mm -hmm. a lot to be worried about. The phenomenon that we're seeing in our country is certainly being replicated around the world mm -hmm. in many ways, which are concerning and uh, not to be ignored. Mm -hmm. But I think that we sometimes do not fall back and realize that we're actually also living. And your, your book, to me, covers this beautifully because you're, you're balanced about it. You're not rah-rah about it. You mm -hmm. talk about what the challenges are. Mm -hmm. But never have we had more tools mm -hmm. in our lives to go at these problems in ways that, that you and I couldn't talk about even if we were here three years ago. Right. And so I actually am deeply um, excited by the new generation and mm -hmm. the people who are unencumbered by mm -hmm. some of the legacy mindset who are using these tools not mm -hmm. to wait a generation, mm -hmm. but to solve problems right here and now in health and education and so mm -hmm. on. And it doesn't mean that when the robots come, this will not have mm -hmm. big ramifications that we have mm -hmm. to work through. But um, to me, it's a, just a very exciting time to be alive. Yeah, yeah. And I think, to your point, I think the key is just that hopefully people deploy these tools in good taste and um, well here's what we know we, we know that they won't 100 percent right I mean mm -hmm. if or if we were sitting on the beach with Orville and Wilbur do you mm -hmm. think that they thought Dresden would be bombed with that device do you think right, they thought right. that Osama bin Laden would fly it into I mean mm -hmm. the one thing that we know about technology in a way is it's, it's amoral yeah, and yeah. what we do with it puts the value upon mm -hmm. it. Net, net, I'm glad we have the airplane, mm -hmm. but it was not right. pretty. Mm -hmm. And right. and stuff that we see now, the idea that it's going to have to be 100% in self-driving cars mm -hmm. or in robotics or in mm -hmm. genomics, I mean, genomics, 
and CRISPR is mm -hmm. about to open up conversations that, again, you and I would not have had two years mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. And so that is the challenge of our time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But net-net, I'd much rather have that challenge yeah. than the alternative. Although we, a lot of what we think about at the Media Lab is how technologies and sciences get deployed. You know, like, like I, you know, I, I've talked about this a lot, so people have already heard it. But like GMOs, I think, were deployed in a not-so-friendly <coughs> way at the beginning. Right. So they have a very negative rap. Electricity, you know, although a lot of the demos were electric chairs, it was about lighting up Paris, right? right? So it was a beautiful thing. And so I think, you know, for instance, like CRISPR gene drive, if it's really done by a community that's well aware in a careful way to, to eliminate something like Zika or Lyme disease, it'd be a good thing. If, it's, if it goes out of control and it's over. Terrible. So, so I, I think it's really important a, a lot about how things like and even the internet i mean i think that you know we would go we have some terrible stuff going on on the internet but the early days of the internet actually were quite optimistic yeah and so i think that everybody kind of let it deploy i mean if, if some of the more negative things came first i think it would have been harder so so and, and again whether the internet in the long run will be net positive or not i i tend to have a kind of hopeful thing that the, the arc bends slightly towards justice but um but I, I also fear the other thing, which is that, um, you know, if you fumble the ball at the beginning, some of these technologies can slow down. And the risk about a technology being stifled is that it tends to go underground. Yes. And then, and then only the bad guys use it. And then that can be pretty And awful. look, I mean, the fact is our, our sisters and brothers in the tech community do not cover ourselves in glory on this because there mm -hmm. is some of this lazy, fair view that, you know, don't worry about jobs and robotics. It'll all work itself out. Everybody thought right. jobs were going away in the 30s and 40s and all of us and agriculture jobs yeah. went away. And, and, and that's... That's careless. It, it yeah. takes the kind of proactive uh, of thinking and acting that you've described in the Media Lab does so well. And I'll tell you the other thing which was in your book, which was so powerful, is that at the time that technology comes out, we often don't even understand what its use is. Mm -hmm. And you open your book with that you know, fabulous story about how when we first looked at movies and film, they were literally like fun little quick vignettes because mm -hmm. pictures could actually move. And, and that's not what film was. That was not what storytelling became. But at that moment, mm -hmm. our imagination looked at it within its narrow confines. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, to me, it's very positive when we begin to leverage mm -hmm. some of these capabilities mm -hmm. with consciousness towards it about what it unleashes well beyond what is the very narrow first view mm -hmm. that we have. And often it's a first view of this is a joke, it's a game, yeah, it's a yeah. toy, and it's not going to work. Yeah. I remember when the internet was a fad. A fad, <laughs> yeah. No, it's going to go away. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's just stunning on that. So. But it's cool. good stuff. All right. It's great Thanks, to be Chris. with you. Yeah, it's always All fun right. to be with you. Thank you.